Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Hello and welcome to The Plays The Thing, your podcast for all things Shakespeare. You have joined us for the sixth and final episode of All's Well That Ends Well, William Shakespeare's comedy. And I am joined today by... Nora Ankrum. And Matt Bianco. We're so glad that you joined us. We have a handful of questions that you listeners have submitted to us about this play. Um, I also want to give a little prelude to a couple of podcasts that are coming. In fact, after this podcast is released, we are going to release a two-part Life of Shakespeare. I have been looking forward to and working on those two podcasts for a long while. It's kind of a mixture of both Shakespeare's biography, as difficult as that is to discern, and he is a notoriously ambiguous subject, recalcitrant subject. He's he's just hard to find in the historical record, but that does not keep people from making all sorts of conjectures about his life. And a lot of those conjectures are really interesting and fun. So two-part Life of Shakespeare play coming up after All's Well That Ends Well. Um, so if you want to learn anything about Shakespeare, that's the place to start, at least according to this podcast. Okay, Matt and you know Nora. We need Tim. I think <laughs> I think Cersei would publish this too. I think we need a book that's like four views of Shakespeare. You know those you know those series that people do. Oh four yeah, views of yeah, Shakespeare. Yeah. One in which somebody goes through the whole corpus and tries to prove from the from the corpus that he was a good Protestant. Another one where somebody goes through and tries to prove that he was a good Catholic. Another one where somebody goes through and tries to prove that he was a good whatever atheist or relative or agnostic, agnostic or whatever, right? Yeah, right, I don't right. know what the fourth one would be, but you know, something like that. <laughs> yeah. Just like a hardcore atheist. That would be a hard position to support, but I'm sure yeah. people have supported that position. It's funny. Cause in the life of Shakespeare, I spend a little time talking about that question, whether or not he was Protestant, whether he was Catholic. And I actually have a conviction that I did not share on the air. Um, but maybe maybe we'll do maybe we'll we'll do just a little conversation about that in some later podcast. First question, you guys, are ready. you ready for this? Ready. Dare even say excited. Mark O'Neill from Madison, Wisconsin, asked, "Where would you three place your love for All's Well That Ends Well within the overall canon?" Now, I want to give you guys four categories to choose from. And the four categories were actually devised by the British government. So several years ago, they did a poll of the British populace, and they asked them basically, how many plays have you read or seen? They had four plays that belonged in the mainstream, 
maybe about eight that were popular. That's the second most popular category is popular. And then they had about another eight in the niche category. And then they had maybe probably a dozen or 15 that were in the underground category. So that's my question for you first, Nora. All's well that ends well. If your four categories are mainstream, like let's call it most popular and best, popular, second most popular, second best, niche, third, underground, fourth, where would you place all's well that ends well? Where would I, like in under which category? Yeah, under which category oh, okay. would you place it? Okay. Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, I definitely wouldn't make it mainstream or popular for sure. Yeah, uh, yeah. But I, I, I could see an argument for niche. Okay. I could see that. You're open to niche? Yeah. Um, a niche categorization? Yeah, I'm, I'm open to that. I, th- I think there's some specific subject matter that it deals with that um, is relatable to other others of his place, I guess. Um, yeah. So, you know, point of comparison. I don't know. I, I would probably go more that direction than underground, I think. Yeah. Yeah. It deserves better than underground. It deserves probably. Oh, I don't know. I wasn't, wasn't ranking them as like better or worse. Just different. Oh, that's what I want you yeah. to do. I want you <laughs> oh, to rank it better oh, or worse. Oh, yeah, that's oh, what I, I want. Oh. I want you to rank it better okay. or worse. All right, I'll give it. I'll give it niche, but it's at the bottom of niche. Okay. Okay. Is that fair? Yeah. Okay. That's fair. It's bottom Matt? niche slash top underground. I guess. Okay. Yeah, <laughs> All right. I like that. <laughs> Matt, how about oh, you? Okay. First of all, I heard the question initially the same way Nora did. This was not a good or bad. It was well, just I, like, what's the most accessible or what's the most, you know, like I figured niche was like only people who really love Shakespeare are going to know these plays. Whereas everybody knows, like they're not going to, you're not going to read it in high school curriculum, you know, high school class. And then underground would be like right. hardcore devotees. Are the only ones who read those, right? Right. <laughs> right. right. Uh, Matt, can I tell you why you took it that way? Because that's absolutely what the British government asked its people. They weren't asking to, like for a quality evaluation. They were just like, hey, have you read or seen this? I'm the one who took it and made it into a quality assessment. So it's kind of weird though, right? Yeah, like, I mean, just evaluate. because something is only read by those who are hardcore devotees doesn't make it bad, right? Yeah, that could exactly. make it the best, actually. I know. You know? Coriolanus. Yep. QED. I, I was going to say. That's the I, one yeah, I would have made. <laughs> <laughs> okay, but let's let's try to stick with my kind of like forced okay. categories. For you, where should so this is it first belong? best, second best, third best, or fourth best? <laughs> yeah, that's right. That's um, right. <laughs> I, pr- I probably would put it. I probably would also put it in the niche. I don't know where in the niche. Like, I don't, I couldn't say as, um, I almost said aggressively, but let's say confidently as Nora that, yeah, (laughs) but it's the bottom (laughs) of niche. I don't know that I could say that. I have to think more about the other ones and where they all go and like, because obviously it has a relative relationship. I'm looking at them. So that's, yeah. Well, right. But then, but then, then you have, um, but you're not using it to te- to say where this one should go, right? Because then it would be in the underground. No, you well, promoted I'm, I'm it looking at the other the ones British. that have been. Yeah. I did, I did. No, indeed, I did, I did. No. I need a rubric next time. I think. Yeah. Yeah. Right. 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 <laughs> you need a better rubric giver than your podcast host. That's for sure. Yeah, that guy's the worst. <laughs> <laughs> so, Matt, basically, your answer is you're equivocating. And in a very Shakespearean style. I picked style, an exact category as you requested. <laughs> I thought you kind of fudged on it. I you just said like, I couldn't mm. say where within the category it goes. Okay. Okay. <laughs> I believe it belongs squarely in the fourth category. You underground. Do. Okay. Yeah, I do. I, I don't think it's, I don't think it's good enough to be niche. All right. Yeah. I think it's just right in the, right in the middle of the underground. And that's, a, you know, there's 15 other plays in there. He wrote 37, 38, depending on who you ask. So, you know, it's not that he has terrible, that um, All's Well That Ends Well has terrible company. There's some great plays in there. But what makes it not, what really makes it plays. his worst category of plays? I prefer to think of it, Matt, as 
the other plays are just better. It's not, I mean, it's Shakespeare. It's great. <laughs> but like, I, I'm trying, I'm looking at the plays that I would bump out. Richard III? No. No. Henry V? No. no. Winter's Tale? No. I wouldn't bump any look, of those. Look, though, look, None of those, those are look, all the thing better. Is, Romeo and Juliet is what it is. It's just going to be, it's going to tell the story that it tells, period. But you take something like, you take something like All's Well That Ends Well, and you and you put it into those three those three showings that we described last episode. You can oh, do yeah. so much with All's Well That Ends yeah. Well that you can't do with some of the other plays. It just hasn't when benefited t- from the marketing that Romeo and Juliet right, has gotten. Exactly. You, know? <laughs> you heard it here first, folks. <laughs> Romeo and Juliet is the product of great marketing. <laughs> I heard it Macbeth. as over Macbeth had a, had a great advertising team. Listen, man, Hamlet is nothing without Lion King. I'm Ex- just exactly. <laughs> That's so true. Hamlet is nothing without Lion King. Oh, man. Can we edit that out? Please? Nora Ankrum. <laughs> November 21st, 2022. Oh, that's remember that? Quoter. You remember that no, awful quote of mine that you have stored away somewhere just in case? Mm-hmm. This is I'm saving this one for that. For my revenge yeah. if I ever need it. Put it in your wallet. <laughs> Agreed. Yeah, I deserve that. I think that people are going to want to know what the mainstream, what the four mainstream plays are. Aren't they obvious? Look, you know what? Do you think that you could have guessed these without looking at the chart that I sent you? You know what? I'm going to say this. I feel very confident that I could have guessed those. I might have, I maybe, maybe, no, I think I would have guessed those because let me back up. Let me say what the four are, and then I'll make my case as to why I think I would have chosen them. Okay. So the most popular plays, according to the British people, fourth place, Hamlet. I probably would have said third, okay? Now, third place. This is the only one I think that should be or might be a surprise. Third place, Midsummer Night's Dream. Second place, Macbeth. First place, Romeo and Juliet. Now, my case for Midsummer Night's Dream is that that is the play for high school students to perform. It is not his best play, like by a long shot. It does not belong in the top four. It doesn't, for me, belong in the top 15. It's fine. It's fine. Yeah, it's, it's like it's a just, costume it's, epic. Yeah, it's accessible, right? It's accessible. Yeah. yeah, exactly. But everyone walks away from Midsummer Night's Dream and they're always like, okay, so what happened yeah, with right? the fairies? <laughs> like, what happened? That's and nobody really knows. Mainstream with best. Fair. Agreed. Popular Agreed. with Fair. the next best because Agreed. these are, I mean, this is just chosen by. Also, there's no way any of those top three beats out Hamlet. So. Absolutely. Know. And there's no yeah. way that any of those beat out Lear. My gosh, Agreed. Lear is Agreed. like, a, yeah. like yeah. a Titanic. I would have. I would have yeah. yeah, or or much ado, right? Right. Or much ado. Right. Much ado is incredible. Yeah, right. like guessing yeah. the yeah. most popular, I probably would have guessed Romeo and Juliet, Macbeth, and Hamlet. I would not have guessed Midsummer Night's Dream, although I should have for the reasons you said, and then because we were talking about popularity, right? Um, but I would have not right. included Midsummer Night's Dream, and I probably would have guessed in its place something like Much Ado About Nothing or King Lear, almost certainly. Right. Okay. Yeah. Can I ask a question? Uh-huh. Okay, so can you guys both pick one from the underground category that's not all's well that ends well to bump somewhere just higher than underground? I'm ready to go, Matt. Yeah. I'll, I'll give you a little time. I think Coriolanus, Coriolanus, which is listed here, like bottom seven, bottom eight, Coriolanus, for me, belongs in the top five. It's so amazing. I it's so amazing. And I wonder why it's less produced. Um, and I think because it's super, the language is the hardest of all mm. of the plays. I think it's the hardest. I think Julius Caesar's language is the easiest. Like I think he wrote really pared down kind of Roman style hmm. um, language, which is ironic because Coriolanus is a Roman play, but it's yeah. the densest language. Uh-huh. Oh my the one gosh, I saw it, it was so Soviet. Hard. Oh, for real? They placed it in the Soviet Union? Yeah. Oh, I bet that was fun. Mm-hmm. That's cool. 
That's really yeah. cool. Hmm. Matt, do you have one that belongs that you think belongs higher up? I don't know. It's it's probably not fair because I haven't read most of those. But um, like literally, I haven't I, like the majority of them I've never read. But I have read Coriolanus. I've read uh, Measure for Measure, and um, obviously All's Well. But that one's off the <laughs> off limits. Uh, <laughs> so I don't know. I mean, I probably would go with. Um, yeah, I mean, I don't Coriolanus is good. Uh, maybe Measure for Measure. Yeah, Measure for Measure is a great play. Mm-hmm. Just a great play. Nor did you yeah. have one in mind? Yeah, you of course. Bump up? So it was loaded. That's yeah. why I asked the question. Yeah. Uh-huh. <laughs> so that we would ask it back. Yeah, of course. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Of course. yeah. Uh, Titus. Titus Andronicus, for sure. Oh, really? Yeah. Really? Yeah. I like that play a lot. Have you yeah. ever been in a production of it or helped with the production no. of it? No, yeah. I'd love to. I'd love to produce it. It's so bloody. Oof. Um, in the life of Shakespeare, Nora, I think you'll appreciate this. I kind of say, hey, Shakespeare is like a lot of, you know, like great movie directors. Their earliest movie is a horror film. Yes. Titus Andronicus is, is a is horror, horror film. film. Yeah, for right? sure. Yeah. Yeah. And apparently it was really popular in its day and like Shakespeare knew how to pack the seats. So more power to him. It is like freaking so bloody. If your kids are in the car, I'm like, fast forward for 30 seconds. <laughs> There's a scene in which the goth queen sits down and eats a pie that includes the flesh of her two sons. Like, hardcore. Oh. Yep. Oh. Yeah, and not yeah. just death. I mean, there's like dismemberment and Yes, isn't and there like a oh. terrible, like a offstage rape? Oh, which, yeah. 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 Oh, yeah. It's got it all, man. Yeah, it's, all it's gory. Stuff. And you know, this you know, a few years so ago. <laughs> this is really Nora, the side of Nora is coming out. <laughs> <laughs> Matt, what were you saying? I don't know if I want to say it anymore. I'm kind of scared of Nora. Um, I know a few years ago I did a, I did a, created a Facebook group and I had created a schedule where everybody could read through all of Plato in one year. Oh, yeah. Um, you should do that with Shakespeare's plays. You should create a schedule where people read through them in, in an order you decide and then uh, see how many people will sign up for it. What if we, uh, you, Matt, I'm a huge believer in seeing productions of plays. Oh, that's right. I forgot. Right. But I think that we could find a production online of just about, and oh, yeah. like if you have a really good public library, I think you could find a production. And see all 37 plays. I couldn't even find the one we just read. I know how to find it. You would have to get BritBox TV via Amazon. Mm. Oh, so to be in your little club now, I have to subscribe to <laughs> the club that you started 20 <laughs> seconds ago? <laughs> That's not the club I started. The club I started, we read the plays. Like you, normal people. You are the no, one. <laughs> we have to perform them. We have to perform totally. them ourselves. That's the club. Nora, it's yes. just, it's wasted breath on this club. I am totally on board with performing a Shakespeare <laughs> play a week for a year. Well, for almost a year. Ooh, a we week. get Christmas wow. and Easter and stuff off, right? One that, week, would be, that would be bold. That, that yeah. I would be for. But making me watch them once a week? Oh man, that's too long. That's too You're crazy. You're so crazy. Jennifer Watts Dagani from Delano, Delaware asks this. Nora mentioned a reluctance to put on this particular play, but I've wondered at the wisdom of playing not necessarily with the other versions of itself, but side by side with Taming of the Shrew. They seem to be two sides of the same coin, and of the two, I prefer all's well that ends well. Um. Oh, yeah, Nora is afraid to put on this play because she would rather <laughs> devote her energy to watching people eat their children. <laughs> That's right. Correct. Yes. That's right. <laughs> hey, as long as it sells tickets, right, Just Nora? Trying to act as this long seat. as it sells tickets. Yes. <laughs> That's right. right. My job. <laughs> okay, one day. Okay, the next prize to win, Nora, the next prize, for, since you are our prize winner, the next, you know, prize that you need to win is like offering to do a side-by-side production all's well that ends well juxtaposed with Shoot. Taming the Shrew. Man, 
That's how you know you've got an audience following. You put out something like that and they're like, yes, please give me tickets. Yes. <laughs> yes. Right. Yeah, that's right. It might be that's the right. people, the underground people, though, that are. <laughs> right. So there's like four of them. <laughs> and they're all in Tim's club. <laughs> yeah, they're all in my club. I love this next question from Aubrey Wetzel. Well, hold She's on, from- hold on, hold on. Let's yeah. just I made a joke too quickly on that one. Well, there was no question. I don't know. But, like- but she's right. It's worth putting them side by side, right? We agree with that. I mean, yeah, I do, and, she, and she pointed sure. out the juxtaposition, the two sides of the same coin. And I, and I think in some case, and I think we we talked about that a lot during the course of this play. Um, but I mean we don't necessarily have to agree on that. I mean, I think the 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 two sides of the same coin would be the uh a marriage where one spouse wants the marriage and the other one doesn't, right? Like that's right. the yeah, right. that's the right. juxtaposition, yeah. right? Yeah. yeah. Okay. Okay. So, I mean, you I I like the idea of comparing those two situations. I think that's a that's a fair comparison. I guess it's not really making a value statement about it, but I mean, yeah. they're not they're but not she, the same play right they're they're different right, stories right, right right and she didn't ask but she wants us to answer the question which of the two would we prefer side by side let's answer that question i'll go first wait wait wait, wait, wait. parameters okay we need yeah, rubric yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> we need a rubric <laughs> I love it. What's the most rubric popular more? side by what, side yeah yeah. Do we, <laughs> yeah but do we mean like popular like is it gonna sell tickets or do we mean like what we prefer story-wise or, I think it's what we prefer. You know, okay. Yeah. All right. I think it's what we prefer. I prefer Taming of the Shrew. I Why? also prefer yeah. Taming of the Shrew. <laughs> yeah. Why? Yeah. I think there's more there. I think it's a better play. I think the characters are more developed. I think it's a little bit more grand. Disgusting. Romance. Disgusting. <laughs> uh, you guys are obviously sexist. You are baiting us. You are baiting us. Only think <laughs> the man has the right to play that role. I prefer yes, right. that ends well because the woman is the one that does well that done. Gets to play that She's role. Two women that are heroes in All's Well That Ends Well, right? Yeah. The Countess and Helena. Oh, that's true. It, uh, it would take two women to do what one man could do. <laughs> wow. And see, I would make For the argument there. that uh, maybe t- Kate's not the only shrew that gets tamed. So. Oh. oh, that's because yeah. Yeah. Petruchio, <laughs> Petruchio also gets tamed. Look at like Jennifer stirring up controversy between us. I know. Good I job, know. Jennifer. Jennifer's a great listener, by the way. She's been, <laughs> she's a faithful supporter of the show. She deserves to be the one who stirs up a little controversy. <laughs> so if we answer that question? Yeah, yeah I'm, I think I'm, so. Next one? Okay, okay. Next question. From Aubrey Wetzel. She's from Wasubi, Wyoming. I have no are you are these real places? Yeah, Matt, I wouldn't make up people's names, make up people's hometowns and just like I think attach that's it on their for name. Shrew too. Because I, I don't see the names of the location. Did you go look them all up like a stalker? What's going on? Sorry, go ahead. No, I go ahead, do. I do research. Okay, <laughs> I mean, researcher Tim. Research. I said stalker Tim. I met researcher Tim. <laughs> Aubrey Wetzel from Wasubi, Wyoming, says I have not read a lot of Shakespeare. So this may be obvious to others. I thought the ending was a lot like Scooby Doo or Star Trek, all tied up neatly with a bow in the last thirty seconds. Is this typical of Shakespeare? That's a great question. That's a great question. Um, I think will we do we all agree with the premise of the question, which is Aubrey says it's all tied up in the last thirty seconds. I think we can grant that premise, right? Yes. Yes. Is this typical of not Shakespeare? Forced, not forced though. Wait, wait. That's not what Aubrey said though. That's that's Matt speaking. Matt's saying I don't think it's forced. This play, or do you mean Shakespeare in general? I think Shakespeare in general, but I think this play okay. in particular, like how could I possibly have guessed how it would end as relatively well as I did if there weren't signs along the way pointing me there? No, I agree. I think You're... it's still artfully done. Okay. Yeah, is that what you mean? Yeah. Yeah, I think so. But it is tied up very neatly. It is. Very much like Scooby-Doo. Yes. So is this typical of Shakespeare? That's the remaining question. I think yes. Uh, not. I don't find many that tie it up this late in the play. 
Yeah. Um, that's the part that honestly surprised me with this one on my first read um, mm. was how long it took to get to, uh, you know, the, the resolution. Um, I think about, I, I think it, I, I would say, I think it's true of Shakespeare's comedies. Yeah. Um, that's what I was thinking. The comedies seem to do this more. Yeah. I mean, they, they, you, the kind of the saying is that comedies end with a wedding and tragedies end mm. with everyone dead on stage. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right. That's, you know, uh, but like, I think about um, like Midsummer Night's Dream, all of this, all of the main conflict is tied up in act four. And then act five is the actual wedding scene. And it's mm. the resolution of the play within the play. And, you know, it, it's, it's denouement, right? It's, it's not, right. uh, there's nothing still to find out in act five. Yeah. Um, and I think that structure is more typical of the comedies. I, I think, um, that you kind of everything sort of resolved by Act Four, and then Act Five is is tying up the loose ends. Uh, but this mm. one, I mean, it it was at the very end. I mean, like oh yeah, last page even. Yeah. Um. So I don't think that's typical, is it? Do you can you think of any others that wait that long to tie it up? Boy, it's such a good question. Hmm. So if we take if we focus on the in the last thirty seconds part, that's not typical. I don't think so. No. But tying it all up. What about, what about much ado about typical. nothing? Much ado about nothing resolves really late. Maybe not last 30 seconds, but like, boom, boom, we're off to weddings, everybody. Peace. And that's yeah. the play. That's true. But I mm. even, but I think that like, we're talking about, that's a hasty conclusion also. Yeah. The tragedies that have a good, that have a neat resolution where like justice is done. Um, they do, you're right, Nora, they just take a little bit longer to resolve. But Macbeth, you know, Macduff comes back on stage after killing Macbeth off stage. He's carrying Macbeth's head and the right ruler of Scotland is, you know, about to be back on the throne. It's a, it's a pretty succinct and neat ending. Um, Hamlet too. It's not neat, yeah. but it, it kind Once, of yeah. foreshadows the justice to come. Yeah, for the that's right. That's right. Hmm. It's not neat in the fact, in the sense that you you don't know that he's actually going to do that, but the expectation, right, is that Fort yeah. Cross is going to resolve everything. Yeah, that's right. I think the thing that makes this one uh, sort of the the neat tying up so stark um, are the stakes in the play itself, which is one of the other questions I think uh, that mm. we get to, but the, you know, you have before, before I'll be your husband, you have to bear my child and have my ring. I mean, those are very specific plot points. And so getting to those was, you know, convoluted at best. And uh, so, so maybe that's part of what makes this one seem particularly uh conveniently tied up i guess yeah yeah next question you guys ready i'm ready yeah bring it the take the takeaway is yes shakespeare is a lot like (laughs) scooby-doo okay there's tim's quote (laughs) (laughs) i don't think anybody's gonna join your club tim (laughs) (laughs) oh they're really gonna love it after this next question they're gonna really flay my my club after the next question um Adam Kanunen from Calypso, Kentucky, writes, citing um, the New Testament verse, 1 Corinthians 7, 3, the husband shall give to his wife her conjugal rights and likewise the wife to her husband. That's the end of the quote. What translation is that? Uh, I don't know, but the ESV says something really similar. Here's the ESV. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights and likewise the wife to her husband. That's exactly the same thing. Yeah, that's it. Oh, so maybe he did take it from the ESV. I am going to ask this question first. I'm really tempted to go on a little discursus about the Apostle Paul sometimes gets like accused of being misogynistic. I'm going to go on the rant right now. I think this chapter is like so... Um, unbelievably out of keeping with ancient views on like, like rights within marriage. It's so 
ahead of his time that I defy anybody to say that the Apostle Paul is not, how, what do I say? How do I say this? Um, I think he, like, this is a very pro-woman statement. Who else in the ancient world is going to say oh, I see. the following? You see what I'm saying, Nora? Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, like, there, what's, what's the line? For the wife does not have authority over, this sounds crazy when you hear the beginning. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. That kind of um, balance, I think, is exceptionally uncommon in the ancient world. And I think if you just read part of it and you just kind of like ripped it from a con- ripped it from its context, it could sound like terrible. Like, oh my gosh, Paul, you're a Neanderthal. I not at all. Okay, that's my little uh, like un unasked for defense of the Apostle Paul. And here we go. It's weird though, because this question isn't worried about that at all, is it? No, it's not. But I think someone who listens to this podcast who doesn't know First Corinthians seven, like the whole context context oh, of that conversation, yeah, yeah. it could that could be a confusing conversation that's to have. Fair. So that's just a little bit of um, supplied context. Since Bertram, I'm going back to Adam's question, did not seem to fear death as evidenced by his eagerness to go to the wars and risk death. Was he not risking death by refusing what he considered a dishonorable marriage? The dishonorable thing is to deny his wife her marital rights. He should have denied his consent to marriage if he was going to deny her a husband. Any thoughts? Matt, we're coming to you, man. Okay. My first problem is that he quotes a verse that says conjugal rights, but then he asks about marital rights. And I just wish Mm. he would have been consistent with his adjectives. (laughs) Uh, Apart from that... Sorry, Adam. Do you think it's do you think it's a substantial difference though? Like marital rights and conjugal rights are not the same thing. No, I I would well, no, that's true, because marital rights would be more inclusive of just right. It would include conjugal rights, but it would be broader Yeah. Um so yeah, so then is he is he is he equivocating here or does he is he just using them synonymously? I don't know. I just took him as synonymous in this in the context, but I think that. Actually, I think his opening premise is incorrect. I don't think Bertram did not fear death. I think Bertram feared death in the way young people fear death. When it was oh, when it man. was immediate and obvious that the king was going to put him to death, of course he's going to say, "Okay, I'll marry her." But when it when it's as dis, like young people don't think they're going to die when they go to war, they think they're going to go be uh, they're going to go be Odysseus and just kill all the bad guys right. and come home victorious and, and heroic. And I think that that's what that's what his intention was. I don't think he I don't think he went to the war because he wasn't afraid of death. Well, he wasn't afraid of death because he didn't think it would happen to him. More like that kind of that kind of thought. So I don't I don't know. Um, I I think I think I think in that case, uh, it's it's not such an easy thing to say. I would refuse to marry her. I refuse to marry her because death was imminent in that in that were he to have continued on that path. Um, But I do agree with the last part for sure that it was dishonorable to deny her her marital rights and that um, he should have he should have refused to marry her altogether and just run away rather than rather than marry her and then deny her the husband be absent. Yeah. Yeah. Nora? I think that's kind of, yeah, I, th- I think that's kind of um, sort of drives home the point of what we've, what we've kind of concluded about Bertram or what, what I've concluded about Bertram. Um, just the, um, the relative immaturity, right. And lack of wisdom in his actions. Um, sure. A, a, a level headed, mature, wise person might say, mm, I don't think I can do that. I can't really enter into this marriage. It's not a, not a great idea. Um, I don't know any young person. Well, I mean, hopefully there are some young people that would do that, but, uh, but uh, you know, typically that would be uh, more difficult for an immature character that, that I find Bertram to be. Um, and yeah, I, I totally agree with, with you, Matt, and that he didn't think he was going to die. 
in war. Was that recorded? Uh, Did we right. get that recorded? <laughs> Man, <laughs> a lot of nuggets in this one. <laughs> Right. Um, yeah, I I totally agree with you guys. Bertram is not thinking like if I go to war, I'm going to get stabbed. He's like, I'm gonna do the stabbing, people. I'm gonna be the one who's throwing the spears, not absorbing any spears. Come on. Right. Well, right. if he's talking about the fear of death that he shows at the end of the play, um, you know, in that very last scene when Helena steps in and, and rescues him, that's an imminent, right? Like that's mm. knife to the throat. Death, right, 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 right. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. So I don't, I don't know that he would have the this. The character is not written to have the foresight to say like this is just not a good idea for me to enter into this marriage. Yeah, this forced I, marriage. I think <laughs> I this know. is the brilliance of of Shakespeare though, and why this one has to at very least be niche and probably the top of niche is that um, is <laughs> and you you brought this point out I think multiple times during the the five main episodes, Nora. It's I mean there's there's Shakespeare's brilliance is his 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 uh, ability to express human nature in these all right. these kind of various circumstances and often very kind of strange circumstances like this one and and I I think as you as you pointed out Nora earlier that the his this, he's a youthful character whatever the age of the actor is who plays him he's a youthful character in the play and he's just lost his father. And he's now being called to go live with the king. His whole life is being kind of turned upside down. He gets there and he thinks, and he, but he probably sees this as a chance for him like to step into his own and become his own man. Yeah. And then the first thing that happens to him is he gets told, you're marrying this woman that you don't want to marry. Like that's like just at the moment when he's supposed to be coming in his own man his power to be one of the powers that you have as your own man, theoretically, at least is the power to choose a wife. And that's the first thing that gets taken away from him. Like there's a lot going on there in the head that I think is easy to skim over because, because, you know, in a short play, it doesn't all get, it doesn't all get attention drawn explicitly to it. But I think you helped to kind of draw attention to that throughout these episodes. Nora. And I I think that's, I, I, I think that's, um, I mean, I think that helps us to understand and explain kind of what Adam's pointing out. Like Adam's right. If we're talking about is at the at a moral level, right? Like what he should have done. Yes. Um, but what he did is, you know, it's, it's fascinatingly revelatory of human nature. Yeah. For Shakespeare to do that. Yeah, it's I, I think Bertram is a character that you can point at and you can be like, I know that guy. I, yeah, I, I met that guy. Yeah, I met right. that guy. And then you're looking right. in the mirror. He's 17. <laughs> <laughs> it's like my it's my high school yearbook or like my right. college. My college. Right. right. <laughs> Last question, you guys. Uh, this one's coming from Emily Mayetta from Malay, Massachusetts. The stipulations that Bertram makes for Helena to be his wife seem impossible for her for her to ever attain, and yet. She somehow fulfills every part of his demands, even though they seem impossible. It's a familiar trope of the impossible prophecy slash demand, although not usually fulfilled by a woman. What other similar scenarios in literature do you think of? How does this setup compare? So Hmm. the trope of an impossible prophecy slash demand is the scenario can we think of other similar scenarios in literature and how does this setup compare? Oedipus has the, oh yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. Like Oedipus has the impossible prophecy. Well, it's impossible to avoid prophecy, I guess in his case, right? Not a pro- impossible to fulfill. That's still, that's a flip. That's a different. Yeah. Wait, say more, Matt. What, what prophecy? Well, Oedipus had the prophecy that he would kill his father and marry his mother. Oh, 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 yeah. And then he tried yeah. to he tried yeah. to prevent it, and it was impossible to prevent. Mm. So that's the that's kind of the Greek tragedy. That's it's kind of a difference between Greek tragedies and Shakespearean tragedies, right? Um, yeah, but I, I don't think it fits exactly what her, with her question. Yeah, what were you gonna say, Nora? Nora, you said something. Um, the first thing I thought of was Macbeth. Um. The oh, that's a great one. Yeah, that's a great one. Uh, when when Burnham Wood uh, marches mm-hmm. to, Dunsinane. to Dunsinane. Yeah, yeah. yeah. 
And uh, uh, and also he of no woman born. Yes, he was ripped untimely from his mother's right, womb. Right. Yeah. 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 That's the first thing I thought of too, uh, which I, I think is works beautifully in Macbeth. I also think about um. Oh shoot! Now I'm gonna forget her name. The the ah in the Lord of the Rings, she kills the Witch King of Agmar. Um, Eowyn. Yeah, sorry. Uh, the prophecy. Oh, I don't remember. I don't remember that prophecy. Uh, the prophecy is that no man can kill the Witch King, and famously in the movie, she rips off oh, the helmet. Oh, that's says, right. That's no right. Man. That's right. Yeah. She, yeah. Well, actually, and and Mary helps too. Mary Adoc, the Hobbit, yeah. who is also not a man. What about, um, oh, this is terrible. The sword and the stone. Um, I'm so, I'm blanking on this. Is this Arthur? Is that Arthur yeah. who pulls the sword from the stone? Mm-hmm. I mean, that's not a series. It's, I mean, it's, it's kind of a prophecy. It's not a series of feats though, but I guess we're not really marshalling. Well, it's still, but it's an series. unexpected fulfillment. Yeah. Right. Uh, yeah. Which I, I think. Yeah, this this play certainly has unexpected, unexpectedly fulfilled uh, demands. Not necessarily prophecy. I get, and that's interesting. Yeah. We're all we're all pointing at prophecy rather than like a. I mean, this is just Bertram making something up, right? Yeah, right. Yeah, right. Yeah. It's not yeah. a prophecy. He's not saying yeah. this is how it's going to be in the future. He's just saying like, you got no shot unless these two things happen. Yeah, he just pulled something out of the air. Yeah. That he knew was impossible, and then she met it. Um, but that is interesting that that all the examples are prophetic. What about they stand um, out more than the kind of demands ones? I mean, do. in our memory, right? Like as part as components to a story, Mary. Oh, that's a great one. Sure, yeah. right. The virgin birth, right? Yeah, right. yeah, yeah, yeah. That's a great one. What about um, Cinderella? Now we're kind of getting into Cinderella. like, well, okay, Cinderella, is this like a Grimm's fairy tale? It probably ends like really, really different than, than Disney's version does. But Cinderella, right? She has all these kind of obstacles, you know, mm. she has to. Oh, right. Clean all the, just clean the house coaches. and do all this yeah, stuff. Yeah, get yeah, a, yeah, yeah. Get a dress yeah. and blah, blah, blah. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and then even, you know, the, the, the shoe itself, right? Like, well, I don't, yeah. I don't remember the Grimm's, but in the Disney one, you know, the, the shoe is broken. And so she can't actually try it on and like, ah, oh, that seems to be the end of the chance. Right. And then she yeah. produces the other shoe and. Nora, I kid you not. If my memory serves in the Grimm's fairy tale, the other sister's cut off parts of their feet to fit in. You knew this. You knew this. It's like, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's how it goes in like the Grimm's actual fairy tales. Yeah. I remembered that part, that difference, but I don't remember the conclusion if it's, if it's, if she actually has the other shoe or not. I don't know. But that's a very bloody episode, by the way. (laughs) Right. We're talking about cutting off feet, like baking people into pies. (laughs) Also from Greek myths, by the way. The beast? The beast has to get somebody to fall in love with him before he can be returned to his... That's a great one. Ah, that's not impossible. He just has to not be a jerk. (laughs) (laughs) So maybe impossible. I don't know. Nora? Yeah, okay. Okay, there we go. There we go. (laughs) And then uh, What's-Her-Face has to guess Rumpelstiltskin's name to save her son, her firstborn. Mm -hmm. Yeah. The princess there. Yeah. All because her father's a big fat liar yeah. and told the, told the king that she could weave gold. I'm sure that we're leaving some on the table. And I'm a little bit embarrassed that most of these are coming from my memory of Disney movies instead of like my deep and rich knowledge of Listen, Disney movies the are based canon. on Shakespeare, like I said earlier, about the Lion King. Lion King! <laughs> <laughs> you guys, I have good news and bad news. The good news is we have... Answered all the questions. The bad news is we've come to the end of the show. This I'll probably never see you guys again. Probably not. Probably not. Well, all we well are. Well. <laughs> That's perfect. <laughs> and we're out. 
Um, do either of you have anything that you would like to tell our audience about, whether regarded to regarding Shakespeare or just your own personal ventures? I would like to say something while you guys think. I have launched a website advertising my service as someone who teaches Shakespeare. The website is Tim Teaches Shakespeare. Dot com. We couldn't make that alliterative. <laughs> Tim tried. teaches Shakespeare. The Bard. <laughs> um, oh, hey, that's good. The Bard. The website explains um, what I do that I offer to like arrange Shakespeare showcases for uh, groups of students. And if you're just kind of curious, but you're not really sure, but you're in the market for some Shakespeare plays that you can perform with your own class or maybe with your kids. I have a website with 40 of Shakespeare's greatest hits for free. 40? Four zero. Didn't you just nice. say he wrote 38 of them? 40 scenes, not plays. Oh. So maybe I misspoke. Did I say plays? Maybe I misspoke. Anyway, maybe if you are in the market for a scene from Shakespeare and you want to perform Romeo, Romeo, wherefore art thou Romeo? You can find it on my website and you can also search according to like the type of scene. Do you want a female monologue? Do you want a scene for nice. four or more people? You can do That's all great. that on the website, timteachesshakespeare.com. Um, Nora, Matt, do you guys have anything that you'd like to mention on the show? I've already mentioned this uh, once, but we, uh, the West Virginia Shakespeare Festival has, um, secured a, another grant for the 2023 festival and we we recently set dates for that it's going to be um summer uh, 2023 uh open, i think we're going to start june 30th and the have the festival those two weeks um but yeah you can uh keep up with us on our facebook page we also have a, a youtube channel where we've posted um previous projects and previous workshops and lectures and things like that. All of that is free and available to the public. Awesome. We're so impressed. Seriously, Nora, we're so impressed. It is cool. I love it. Very cool. Matt, and what's happening with Searcy? Searcy, the Searcy Institute is the host of this um, play, All Things Classical Education. Anything interesting happening at Searcy these days, Matt? We just launched a brand new website. Our first update in years and it took us a whole year to do it so it's got a lot of reworking mm -hmm. uh, but probably the probably the more interesting news i think maybe from the um, podcast world is i mentioned i think a couple of weeks ago but we've officially launched a new podcast show called overdue classics and it's in the style of the plays the thing and mm -hmm. uh, close reads and three people get on the air and talk about a text. And in this case, we're the, the podcast show is focusing on kind of the more classical ancient books and stuff that, um, that, you know, they told you in high school, you're supposed to read and then you never did. And now you're in classical education and you're like, Oh, I probably should read that. So we're, you know, I'm just working through that. So we just, so uh, now you can do it with friends on this podcast, do, do with friends, right? We just did Plato. What's the so which which Plato dialogue did you did you discuss? We did Alcibiades one, which is on okay. what does it mean to know thyself, and then okay, we were going to move from that to the Oedipal cycle, but then we decided Yay. to do, um, <laughs> we decided to do Alcibiades two because it's short, it's, it'll be a one off episode, and then we're going to do the uh, Oedipal cycle. So, and then there was a huge debate offline about whether we should do it in the publication order or in the internal chrono chronology order mm. and oh. you know the same debate that happens with chronicles of narnia happens with this because that's interesting sophocles wrote antigone first which is the last chrono chronologically is the last of the three yeah so we had a big debate about which order to read them in and then decided to go with the chron chronological order internal chronology mm. because Sophocles' audience probably would have known who Oedipus was when they when they saw Antigone performed, and our audience might not. So that sounds great. And yeah. say the name of it again, Matt. Overdue Classics. Um, and you can find that I am sure on the Circe Institute's website. Yeah, all the same um, places you can find the plays of the thing. And yeah, yeah, yeah. Great. 
Hey, I want to thank both of you for coming on the show. This will not be the last time that I've got you guys, you two on the show. Um, but I really appreciate it. And I'm a little sad that we have to say goodbye for a little while. Me too. But we'll be back. Um, thank you, everyone who's listened. Uh, be on the lookout for our two-part, The Life of Shakespeare. It'll be out in about one week from the publishing of this show. So we'd love to know what you think. Until then, thank you so much for listening and take care. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.